A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush and this week Stephen and I are joined by a special guest, Howard Davis, Chairman of the Royal Bank of Scotland and former Director of the London School of Economics to discuss the budget in a special budget podcast. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman's post-budget podcast. I'm happy to say we're joined again by Howard Davis from RBS to talk over what was in it. It was a very full and interesting budget. How what do you feel the kind of, well, both the headline announcements, but also what do you feel the kind of stuff that was not headline but was important? Yes, I think that the expectations that we had for a large increase in public investment for the next few years were met. Obviously, whether you get enough bang for your buck on that investment, we'll only see. So I think that bit was well trailed and probably makes overall sense given the low cost of borrowing at the moment. I think there was also, I would frankly say, a good package of measures on the coronavirus. We'll no doubt come on to that a bit later. But I think they did target very well the cash flow implications for small businesses. And from a bank's perspective, we start to see that already. And that is absolutely crucial to prevent a short-term interruption to economic output, having long-term consequences via firm bankruptcies, and etc. So all of that makes sense. And clearly, it's just a truism to say that we will have to give the NHS whatever it needs. You know, we will not have bodies lying in the streets. They will have to spend the money. So I guess we could take that for granted. So all of that is fine. I think what's slightly more difficult is that if you look at what the Office of Budget Responsibility is saying, they're saying that there is a bit of a boost to output from their expenditure, but that that actually doesn't even fully offset the drag on output from the changed immigration policy, which is reducing skilled labour coming into the country. And they also point out, of course, that we still have the drag of Brexit, which is going to reduce GDP by 4%, they believe, over, say, a decade, and reduce productivity via our less openness to trade. And finally, they point out that this large increase in borrowing, although very affordable at the moment because the borrowing rates have gone almost zero for quite a long time, does mean that the government's finances are more vulnerable to a a rise in inflation in the future. So they say the public finances are more vulnerable to adverse inflation and interest rate surprises than they were. So we're making a bet here that interest rates are going to remain subdued for quite a long period ahead. Now, it's already been a decade Mm. that interest rates have been close to zero, so maybe that's not such a ridiculous assumption. But I think the OBR rightly point out 
that we are then more vulnerable to inflation and interest rate rises, given the very large volume of additional borrowing there's going to be. That's so interesting, Howard, that you point out the gap between Rishi Sunak's rhetoric when he was delivering the budget and what it actually says in the OBR report, because I think a lot of commentators were praising him for being sort of frank about the impact that coronavirus is going to have on our economy. But he was very, you know, strongly said that this is only going to be a short term impact. But what you've just laid out there is sort of long-term threats to our economy. And that's something that he didn't mention at all in, in, in his speech. So I do think that kind of frankness that's been celebrated perhaps isn't truly the case with this Chancellor. Well, the I, I would distinguish two things. I think the coronavirus thing, I think he was pretty frank about. And I think that is sensible for him to be, I mean, to lower expectations. You know, you hope you're going to exceed them. But I, So I don't think you could say he wasn't frank about that. The bit that wasn't ever mentioned in the speech was that this budget is against the background of a reduction in trade openness via leaving the EU, a productivity fall there, and also a reduction in migration, which is also a drag. Now, what you can interpret is that this huge investment in infrastructure, but also in R&D, is the government's strategy to try to offset those drag effects on the economy from leaving. Now, since you've got a Chancellor and a Prime Minister, etc., who all believe in leaving the EU, they have to believe that that will work. And they certainly are putting their money where their mouth (laughs) is. Now, we don't know whether it will work or not. And what the OBR are saying is, you know, you have to bear in mind that this is against the background of pretty much all economists saying that Brexit is not great for the economy over a medium term. But at least we now have some kind of strategy for trying to offset that. Mm. On the sort of interest rates thing, the thing I find found sort of fascinating watching it is, yeah, I remember when I first started covering budgets, you talked to people who worked for George Osborne and they were terrified about what happened when interest rates went back up to normal and what the economic consequences of that would be. Now we have a Chancellor and indeed a large number of economists across the spectrum think that low interest rates are the new normal and you therefore do have more sort of borrowing headroom. What to you, you know, obviously as an organisation which sort of has to be keenly aware of the other side of the liability sheet. Do you think that the era of interest rates being this low is the new normal, or do you think that it is just a, the post-crisis interest rate situation has lasted longer than we expect? Yeah, the, the difficulty with that is that um, there are, for every three economists, there are four explanations as to why we have continued low interest rates. I mean, roughly, there's one explanation, which is that we still have a large debt overhang from the last financial crisis. I personally don't think that's so valid now. I think we have worked off quite a lot of that. But then there's another explanation, which is fundamentally that there is a savings and investment imbalance, and that you have an aging population around the world, not just here, but also in China, which is trying to save, and and the investment opportunities globally are not sufficient to use up that surplus saving in a productive way. Now, that, I think, can be partly offset by countries, and we're one, but the Germans probably the biggest, actually investing in the infrastructure. And the German balance budget is probably the single most loopy thing we have around the world at the moment. They should be investing more. So to some extent, this is an offset to that imbalance of savings and investment, which I would have in my mind as mental map, if you like, as being the main reason for continued low interest rates. So what the government is doing ought over time to push interest rates up a bit because it ought to be increasing the 
investment rate, which should be mopping up surplus savings. So in a sense, they ought to hope that interest rates rise a bit. And the question is, have they pitched that sufficiently? I guess they wouldn't be concerned if interest rates at the long run were a couple of percent by the end of this period. But if they were four, then they've got a problem. Mm -hmm. And not to hark back to the George Osborne era again, but I remember whenever he used to deliver a budget, there always used to be a need to break the fiscal rules that he'd set for himself. (laughs) And and, and Rishi Sunak sort of made quite a big thing about meeting the fiscal rules that had been set before he, he took the role. How likely is it that he's going to be able to meet those rules in terms of, you know, what what you've just laid out about what could be the risks for the economy in in the near future? Well, uh, I don't think he is going to meet them, actually. I mean, the OBR again says, formally speaking, the fiscal rules approved by Parliament remain in force for now and the government is not on course to meet them. Mm-hmm. So now there are various different fiscal rules, of course. Yeah. There's the rule about the percentage of GDP that you spend on debt. And they will meet that because interest rates are so low that that's not really a problem. There is a rule on the percentage of GDP that you invest, and they're pushing up investment towards that. But the rule that you should be aiming for fiscal balance after three years, that's gone by the board. But he did say that he was going to review those fiscal rules. Now, if you look, you know, over the last 20 years, we've had different fiscal rules every three or four years and it's not surprising but at the moment he is not meeting the Mm -hmm. ones previously set out or one of them actually on fiscal rules how do you think they're important obviously politicians since you know since new labor everyone now has them in politics and people get very excited and het up about them from a journalistic perspective but if he had stood up and gone goodbye Sajid Javid and goodbye with his fiscal rules would that have alarmed you I'm an old-fashioned treasury guy, Rick. eh? That's where I sort of cut my teeth in the treasury. And so I think fiscal rules have got two purposes. One, which is less important at the moment, which is to reassure the financial markets. And I doubt if we will get a massive increase in in the yield curve at the long end, you know, for the moment, because as I've said, there is this underlying problem. So I don't think that they form much of a purpose there. However, internally, in government, you know, there's only one department out of 20 that actually wants to control public spending, and that's the Treasury. And you have to have a framework within which you can deal with the bids that come at you, some of which are good bids, but some of them are pure self-serving bids by you know, producer interests <laughs> in the Ministry of Defence or wherever it might be. And so you have to have a framework in order to knock those back during the course of each each financial year. And so the risk of not having a fiscal framework is that you don't have a good basis where in Cabinet you can say, look, I've just been asked for three more aircraft carriers, but we did all agree (laughs) that public spending was not going to be above this. And if we agree that, it will be. So we've all agreed a rule and this bridges it. That's the value of them. So I think that he will need to put in place a new spending rule, and indeed he said there's going to be a review, because otherwise he goes naked into every cabinet discussion, and the argument for more spending always sounds more persuasive than the argument for meeting your fiscal rule, Mm. except if everybody's lined up to them. And you've got to have them lined up to them in principle so that they have some effect in practice. I'm so Anoush, the thing I thought was striking about this budget and we'll get on to sort of the end of austerity and inverted commas and the covid response in a bit but just mm. the last bit in this segment is mm. what i thought was really striking was how much none of the kind of it felt to me there was nothing in this budget for any of what we would have described as the time bombs underneath the british state nothing on social care 
although there was an expansion of UC for COVID purposes. But yeah, yeah. Well, did I miss anything? No, no, I, you haven't missed anything. They have. <laughs> so they haven't put in place a change in how social care is funded and they haven't put in place a change in how local authorities are funded. Yes, there's a new hardship fund for local authorities to help people who are vulnerable in terms of the, the virus, but it's not very big, £500 million for local authorities is not very much money. They've said they'll give all of the money necessary for the NHS to handle the the crisis at hand, and they've also said that they'll be giving more money to the NHS in general. That was their general election pledge. But that doesn't mean a huge amount if there's no funding for social care. Well, there is more funding for social care, but not enough and not a new structure for it as, as our economy ages and more working age people rely on social care. And the reason why that's a big problem is because that's the thing that's putting the most pressure on the NHS and the number of beds we have, etc. And also, it's a problem in terms of staffing, and particularly with these immigration changes that are coming up, the so-called sort of unskilled workforce that we need for social care. And as well as that, it puts pressure on other public services that councils are supposed to be delivering because while they have to meet their social care requirements by law they don't have to keep their libraries open for example so we'll see a further disintegration of the public realm which will make it difficult at some point for this government to claim that it is the new public services party if i may say so you have omitted to mention the business rates public lavatory oh yeah of course uh, which could have a big impact on the facilities Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So I guess the big headline-grabbing thing was what Rishi Sunak led with right from the start, which were the measures to tackle the demand shock that will be caused essentially one way or another, we think, by COVID-19, whether it is successfully contained, successfully delayed, or if the government's unsuccessful in any of those. Now, the thing I thought was interesting about it is as I was listening to it, I thought, oh, these, these are two very sensible levers to pull, right? So he had one set of levers to help workers, ending of the universal credit minimum salary threshold, ending of the requirement to go in for face-to-face meetings with job mm. centres. So, And essentially, I thought a very sensible using of existing schemes, but expanding who they gave money to them, and then essentially tax holidays and tax relief for small businesses to weather the demand shock. The thing, my sort of note of criticism was that I didn't think that the numbers were quite big enough. What I was struck by, however, was as that was happening, uh, we were watching in the same room, how you said, oh, well, the markets have, have gone down. Do you think then, what do you think drove the fact that as he stood up and went, here are my plans for this demand shock, in a way that I think most journalists watching and most MPs watching thought on both sides thought was very reassuring, the markets seem to be not reassured? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd take a slightly different view about it. I mean, the markets were slightly up this morning, went down again, because I think they feel that, you know, that, well, a lot of what's going on was influenced by what was happening in the States and the markets reopened in America and they went down again, so ours went down here. So I'm not sure that was just about the budget. My view is that he has a difficult task, and I would say that he's done it reasonably, because the cost of these measures, bluntly, will be what it is, because it will depend on how many people 
are laid off, how many people <clears throat> have to take statutory sick pay. If you made a very big assumption about that and put a, put a very big number in, people would quickly back that out and go, goodness me, just think, he believes that actually there's going to be several million people not working. So there was a balance between not wanting to give a forecast of absolute horror, but also suggesting that this was significant enough to make a difference. I don't quite know what they've based their assumptions on. Maybe they've looked at Italy and things like that. But I thought it was reasonably well pitched. Anything more would have sounded alarmist. Anything less would have sounded too feeble. The actual price will be what it is. It may be higher than this, it may be lower than this, because it's basically demand-led, isn't it? It's not as fixed sum. He's kind of deducing a sum from saying, you know, you'll get sick pay from the first day rather than the eighth day. You'll get this for this 14 days, but you don't know how many, if that's going to be half a million people or if it's going to be five million people. Yeah, I'm probably ageing myself to a very specific cohort of journalists, but whenever I hear the phrase whatever it takes from a politician, I do always think of Mario Draghi with the Eurozone. And of course, the measures he introduced then to combat it Mm. were we would look back and go, oh, they were in entirely inadequate to the task. What mattered was that he signalled that he was going to do it and he wasn't going to... Well, and I think with with what Sunak's done, which is very sensible, is not to go, oh, there'll be a new benefit mm-hmm. for people. That it just, he's just gone, there'll be a thing called UC and it will be much easier to claim than we've hitherto made it and that's how we will pump money to households. Anoush, yeah, as our sort of UC maven... Um, <laughs> Now, in theory, of course, if UC had been introduced and worked as possible, this would would just yeah be its sort of great coming out party, and it, it meant this is the most extreme scenario. But this is the most extreme scenario that UC is meant to be able to work towards. Just talk us through the tweaks he did introduce and how they will make it easier to to deal with it, and also what what about it is still going to be a pain. From yeah. UC. Okay. So first of all, what was interesting is he used the phrase safety net a few times. And that is what universal credit or any welfare system is supposed to be. It's supposed to help you when crisis hits you. But because he's had to introduce tweaks to universal credit, that gives further proof that at the moment it's a flawed system. What he's changed is that you will be able to get universal credit without the minimum income barrier, which is sort of what's usually applied to to you if you're claiming universal credit as a self-employed worker. So they sort of assume what your income is going to be from from your usual income from your self-employed work, and then you're paid accordingly. So now that that threshold won't be there anymore, it means that your payments should be higher while you're not working and you're a self-employed person. For the other benefits, that's that's all that's changed to universal credit. So that's that's not a huge change because for people who have to claim universal credit for the first time, presumably the five-week wait is still there because there was no suggestion that that would be taken away. Mm-hmm. Waiting for five weeks for your first payment when you're not working and you're at home and unable to make any money is a really long time for a lot of people. And it's one of the main reasons that food bank use has been going up in the past few years. So that's not a huge change. Another benefits change is for employment and support allowance, uh, the contributory arm of it, which is what usually people claim if they're agency workers or people who don't get sick pay and sick leave from their employers in the gig economy, etc. If they injure themselves or if they get ill, they usually claim ESA. The change to that is that you can now claim that on the first day instead of after... I think, eight days. So that will make a a difference to people. But ultimately, 
really what I mean I've already spoken to someone a, a union rep for a lot of workers who are in this situation many of whom work in hospitals for big contractors and also care workers people who clean ambulances you know people who clean GP surgeries who are all on these contracts where you don't get the proper sick pay that you know you would get if you were properly employed I've already spoken to them and they've said that this is going to make not very much difference what they've been calling for is is for an increase in the level of sick pay because sick pay is the statutory sick pay is not very high and also for people to be paid what their their fellow employer direct employees are being paid at these hospitals for doctors for example so the problem here and it sounds like it's a small number of people who are affected the people who are affected are the people who are most vulnerable to contracting the virus and most vulnerable to passing it on if they carry on going into work when they shouldn't. And that problem has not been fixed yet. And I've been speaking to people for a piece that I'm working on that will come out next week who work in these kind of jobs who are absolutely in a dilemma because for them it's a choice between missing their rent and their bills and having no income to support their families and going into work anyway. And this isn't just in the caring sector either. I mean, I... I was told the other day that in the supermarkets, about 20% of their employees are people with caring responsibilities of one sort or another. And therefore, if they have to stay at home, then that means a very significant problem for supermarkets, which could could have a big supply side impact. It's odd because I thought the caring thing, it was the really interesting sort of missing part of those measures you know then so yesterday in in my free morning email I wrote a piece going well look the big question is is the thing we're lucky about is that our state is well equipped to just give people money to not work if they if they have to because almost everyone comes into contact through through PayY in some way shape or form and I had a slightly surreal moment of someone who reads it at the CBI getting in touch by a phone and some several people who read it at the TUC getting in touch. And they all essentially had a very similar list of uh, of what they wanted. And I was looking through the, the sort of inadvertent checklist I'd been provided. And the one thing that was really – two things that were really missing were, one, ending the – five week the five week wait for universal credit but I sort of suspect that will happen and was partly about avoiding having a big terrifying number which allowed people to go ah that means you expect than a fifth of people Mm. the the complete omission was anything for parents there was no change on so if you take parental leave you have to give notice obviously you can't sort of just phone up and go by the way I'm going to be off for an indefinite period looking after my sick child I suspect again the calculation there is the second you start opening the barrel marked parenting, you're in a very public discussion about school closures, which is visibly not where the government wants to be. But I think, yeah, that felt to me like the other big, mm. the bigger mission was well, parents. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's to do with the sort of wording. Maybe they didn't want to create the panic like that. But they have said that anyone who's instructed to self-isolate, even if they don't have symptoms, and also anyone who needs to take time off work to care for someone in mm. self-isolation, can also have statutory sick pay, that is, if they are eligible for statutory sick pay. So maybe that wording means that they are covering it somehow. But, I mean, it's not very reassuring if you are a parent and you're in that situation. It's not clear. But it's not covering if just if a school is closed and you have to stay at home to look after the children, you're not ill, they're not ill, nobody's ill. But, yeah. you know, that's a different different thing. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what other people think, but my assumption listening to this is that their main aim... And I think the big thing was, A, to have a moment in which your Chancellor says in an authoritative and calming voice, we'll do whatever it takes. But then the anticipation is surely this will not be the last fiscal event that we have this year and then there will probably be more broadly of the same outline. So here are some tax holidays for business. Here's some, in many ways, essentially helicopter money through the benefit system. But mm. the, I 
don't think for a moment that anyone believes and this is the last word they will utter on support through this demand shock. No, I think they'd be wise to keep their powder dry on some things because we've no idea, have we? We've never been in this situation. Maybe it won't be too bad, even if schools are closed, because an awful lot of people can work at home at the moment, far more than even 10 years ago would have been possible. So, you know, it may be that we, we struggle on, but we just don't know. No, we've not had this experiment before. We would hope we don't have it, but if we do. On that theme, I'd quite like to ask you, as you've, you know, you probably have more experience in all of this than we do, but how, how common is it for when there is a sort of, when there are crisis measures put in, for them to stay afterwards, after the crisis is over? So, for example, yes. will people no longer have to go physically to a job centre anymore now that they've introduced that measure? That's what, I mean, I, I was thinking partly that, and it may be that that does make sense. But the other things I was worried about were things like the business rates holiday. You know, mm. you give people a holiday for a year and then you try to reinstitute the tax. And, um, you know, they've got used to operating without that tax. And then, you know, you'll probably have to taper it on the way back in. So, as I say, the Treasury person in me was going, oh, mm. God, you know, getting this revenue back <laughs> in the future if you need it is not going to be at all easy. Happy Christmas. Austerity is over. Uh, again. Again, yes. Yeah. So, is this, so is this the third or the fourth budget where austerity has ended? I think so. I think it's the third. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. So I think that was, again, the idea. People are supposed to get the idea that the, the spending taps are on. Of course, we've talked about how much more they are, they are, they are actually spending. They want to be seen as the public services party, the, the actual workers party, I think is the new phrase, or the real workers party. But because of what we've discussed in, in the previous part of the podcast about the lack of reform for the social care system and also for local authority funding, it seems unlikely that drawing attention to the public services that you're saying that you're going to fix and that you're going to be a champion of is particularly wise when we know that those services are unlikely to be back on their feet anytime soon. The thing I thought was odd, partly just watching sort of the reaction from Twitter and the message I was getting from MPs during it, and in an odd way, the the, so the pre-budget spin, and yeah, who, whoever did that should pour themselves a very large glass because, I mean, it was all, I yeah, the BBC's story on it really could have been written by Rishi Sunak himself. But they did a brilliant job in terms of having the story where they want it to be, which is we're spending loads of money, austerity is over. But in an odd way, I think there's a risk that they don't get the credit for the actually radical thing they are doing, which is very different, not just from Osborne and Hammond, but from... Brown, from Darling, from Callaghan, from Jenkins, from essentially every chancellor we've had in the democratic era, and we have tended not to spend very much on infrastructure, while they are continuing to spend, this is essentially an Osborneite budget as far as public services are concerned, coupled with an entirely new and very radical budget on infrastructure. Now, obviously, as a big infrastructure nut, I think it is really, it is actually, yeah, there are huge benefits, you know, you you completely remove the need to have to raise taxes if you can make England's great cities as productive and contribute as much GVA per head as London does. So it's a big, big deal. Mm. But it does feel to me that if I were watching this and I were particularly invested in the Conservatives' electoral projects, I'd be slightly worried that the impression being given off is one that the public services are going to feel a lot of largesse, which I just don't think is the story of this budget. 
Well, I think you've got to break it down a bit. You know, the NHS has been doing reasonably well in terms of overall spending. Obviously, you know, demand's still high. But what, what's really been squeezed, and the IFS keeps saying this, is the non-protected public spendings. Mm. And that includes, you know, DCMS, but local authorities, the biggest ones, also defence, actually. But, and so all of those ones which are not health yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, have been squeezed, we'll need the... IFS with their calculators to work out whether we, by the end of this parliament on these plans, we've got back to the level of spending in 2010, which we're now well below in all of those non-controlled areas, I suspect probably it would still be below. So I think it will still be quite, feel quite tight in those areas that are not the NHS. As far as the infrastructure is concerned, what I found quite interesting was that and I think it was about 40 minutes in before we had any climate change reference. Mm. Now, I understand, of course, the dominant priority of coronavirus, you know, well, nobody. However, Green would have ignored that, I think. But this infrastructure stuff is going to depend on being able to situate it within climate change commitments, both the Climate Change Act and following the recent judgment at the Court of Appeal in line with Paris commitments. And I don't think that in a number of these cases they're close to having a planning statement and a policy framework which will meet that test. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much of what this is, uh, pl- the plans, will actually be implementable in the near term. I mean, some things, you know, duelling this bit of road and mm. bypassing some town in Wales, you know, is probably perfectly possible. But for the big schemes, you know, you have to put out a statement and you have to explain how you're going to cope with the carbon emissions dimension of it, etc. And there's a lot of complicated stuff to do before they can start. Mm. I guess, yeah, sort of actually in terms of the, the implications of that statement, of that court case, the other thing I was thinking of during it is, of course, you do have to get people to build things. One of the things the OBR talks about is the impact on growth on the immigration stuff. Now, the political expectation, I think we were fairly unified on saying this on the podcast, is that actually the new immigration policy will have hundreds of holes built in it to allow immigration to go through. Do you think that is that the expectation that most British banks have, do you think? Or do you think that there's much more of an attitude of you have to take what the government says literally rather than going realistically skilled, unskilled immigration will probably continue about this level? Well, if you're a large employer, then you do follow the rules, broadly speaking. You know, you you will be very scrupulous because you're in the public eye. And so from our point of view, we would certainly assume that the policy will work and we will have to operate within it. So I would have thought that if there are holes, it will be not in the large high-profile employers. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, hope, I would say hopefully we'll see you at the next fiscal event, but seeing as there may be many more here. <laughs> you, yeah. can, you can move in. Yeah. <laughs> same time, same <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikalian, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. We are recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is Devil by the Devil by the Underschool Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Mm-hmm.